attitudes about race have changed, but the material conditions of black Americans relative to white Americans have not improved much since the end of the 1960s. Wealth and income and earnings and unemployment for both whites and blacks, these trends fluctuate over time, but the gap has been remarkably persistent. And now the good fight with Yasha Monk. I'm quite proud of my record on predicting elements of the coronavirus pandemic. Two examples. In March 2020, I wrote an article called Cancel Everything, in which I called on employers not to have the white-collar staff come into the office, in which I called on big events like concerts and sports to be temporarily shut down. It was one of the first articles full-throatedly making that case, and it had a real impact. A few months later, the newspapers were full of stories about how the economy would never be the same as it was, how nobody is going to go to a party or a bar ever again. At that time, I predicted that we might end up with a roaring 20s, that social life would return, and anybody who has spent time in big cities in the United States or in Europe over the last months, the places where thankfully a significant percentage of the population has access to a vaccine, can I think see but those predictions turned out to be right. Now, to hold myself accountable, I should also be upfront about the one important area in which I was overly optimistic. And that is that I thought that once vaccines were readily available, we would get to about 75 or 80% of people who take up the vaccine and with the variant of the coronavirus that was then in circulation, that would have been enough to reach herd immunity. Well, we've seen in the last months that there is vaccine hesitancy in many parts of the world, in many different milieus in the world, concentrated in some of the more red states in the United States, but beyond that as well. And as a result, we're now seeing the strange emergence of a two-sided pandemic, one that is very much under control among the vaccinated, who thankfully continue to be very well protected against severe cases of COVID-19, and one among the unvaccinated, where the more infectious Delta variant is spreading with great speed, sending a growing number of people to hospitals, ICUs, and sometimes morgues. So the question is what to do. Should we reinstate social distancing measures? Should we start wearing masks indoors again? Should we put everybody's life on hold because of our inability to reach herd immunity? My answer, and it's not an easy one, is no. Social distancing was always meant to be a short-term measure to avoid the most catastrophic outcomes like an overburdening of ICUs at a time when we are unable to protect people against serious disease. At this point, we are not yet anywhere close to ICUs being overburdened in the same way they were in the spring of 2020. And the people who are getting sick from COVID-19 in the great majority have had ample opportunities to protect themselves and in many cases don't want social distancing measures, don't want life to 
shut down. We should not mock people who don't want to take the vaccine. We should not look down on them. We should treat them seriously and make an urgent case for why we want them to get vaccinated, for why we want them to maximize their chances of surviving this pandemic. But when we refuse to do that, this is no reason for the whole of society to impose the very significant costs with social distancing, the very significant costs that, for example, school closures would have on us all. Let us do what we can to overcome vaccine hesitancy, but unless a new variant of COVID-19 emerges, unless vaccinated are once again in very real danger, let us resist renewed lockdowns. Today, it's my pleasure to welcome Patrick Sharkey to the podcast. Patrick is a professor of sociology at Princeton and one of the most renowned criminologists in the country. We try to understand why it is that after decades in which violent crime fell, it started to plateau about five years ago, and it has been rising rapidly and dangerously over the last couple of years. Patrick makes a compelling case that this doesn't just matter to middle-class people living in big cities, but that it is a pressing injustice for people who live in the most afflicted neighborhoods. He also argues, however, that returning to what he calls the uneasy peace that we used to have, the way in which we used to control crime, would be a mistake. We need to solve the crime problem by new ideas and new investments in thriving communities. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Patrick Sharkey, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on, Yasha. So there's been a lot of public debate in the last weeks and months about whether the great decline in crime that the United States has experienced for decades, since the early 1990s or so, has stalled, and whether perhaps we are even at the beginning of a real surge in crime. What is your sense of the data at this point? Yeah, it's a tough question. So I make sure never to predict what's going to happen. Too many criminologists have been burned by forecasting into the future. And, and one thing we know is that violence is just this incredibly complex phenomenon. So it is an emergent phenomenon that means like there's no single factor that causes it. When factors change, it doesn't necessarily mean violence is going to change. That said, so here's where we are. From 91 to 2014, violence was cut in half across the country. And in lots of cities, it fell by 75, 80, 85%. 2014 was one of the safest years in the history of the U.S. The murder rate was 4.4 per 100,000. That's the lowest rate on record. Since the data have been relatively high quality, that's the lowest murder rate we've seen. And then since then, violence has been rising. It's been rising very slowly, very gradually since 2014 until last year when the violence skyrocketed. And last year, the murder rate in the end will probably have risen somewhere between 25 and 30 percent 
So we're going to be up over six murders for every 100,000 people. It's definitely the most violent year of the century so far. And it's continued into 2021. And just as I said, the crime drop was particularly pronounced in cities, LA, New York, San Francisco, Minneapolis. Similarly, the spike last year hit a small number of cities particularly hard. And there are several cities where the number of fatal shootings rose by 60, 70, 80% last year. And that's continuing into 2021 so far. So we're really following the data very closely and trying to get a sense as the chaos from last year stabilizes a little bit. The real question is whether we'll end up seeing last year as an aberration or whether it was the start of a longer term period of rising violence. So you referenced the chaos of last year. There's, there's two ways of reading that. One is simply the pandemic, which obviously is an incredibly disruptive event, severs people from their social contacts. That would in some ways be the most hopeful explanation of this rise in crime, because assuming, please God, that we're not about to live through another one in a century pandemic, that would mean that some of this sort of violence we've seen in 2020 would be likely to subside. But the fact that you're saying actually this rise in crime seems to be ongoing, but even in the last months, we're still seeing a lot of it, uh, potentially cuts against that. Because if you're thinking that the rise in crime is really about social dislocation, then as things are opening up again, we should, I imagine, see a decline or a stabilization of crime. So how do you think at this point, what do we know about the ways in which this may have been caused by the pandemic or that we really need to look for other factors? Yeah, I think the dislocation is a good word. I like that word, dislocation, disconnection. I think this started in the pandemic in the sense that it wasn't just the suffering that came about because of the pandemic, and it wasn't just people being locked down. It was the breakdown of social institutions that bring us together and that kind of provide the foundation for every community across the country. Those core institutions of a community, and I'm talking about schools, but also you know, libraries and parks and playgrounds, those public spaces were shut down in addition to community centers and after-school programs and summer jobs programs and so forth. Those set of institutions bring together and kind of provide the foundation for social order. And when those institutions shut down and people retreat to their homes, it doesn't make every community more violent, but it makes every community more vulnerable to violence. And when public spaces are abandoned and institutions start to shut down, it creates the possibility for violence to emerge. So I think that was the starting point. We didn't see the explosion of violence until later in the year. So that gives us a hint that it wasn't all about the pandemic. You had first the pandemic and the lockdown. While that was going on, you had this just incredible increase in gun ownership and gun sales in the background. Okay, so that's kind of lying in the background over the whole year, a record-breaking year in terms of gun sales. And by the way, there are some new evidence, or at least hints of evidence, that those guns were circulating to the streets early in the pandemic. Jens Ludwig, who's maybe the best criminologist in the world, who runs the Chicago Crime Lab, put out an analysis last week showing that there was an increase in the number of people who were stopped and were carrying a gun in Chicago as early as March and April. So anyway, there's some new evidence there. And then you have the protests in late May after George Floyd was murdered and the reaction to it and the set of processes that that generates, which 
includes both changes in police behavior, but also changes in residents' behavior. And that's when violence really started skyrocketing in lots of cities across the country. So, you know, when I look at last year, lots of people are still gathering data. These are all hypotheses right now. But my team, my lab here at Princeton, we've started making some progress toward, I think, getting an understanding of when things happen and at least some pieces of an explanation. And then there's some other good analyses coming out. And it's leading me to this idea that it was this confluence of three stages or three sets of factors, the pandemic, the breakdown of social institutions, the rise in guns, circulating guns, and then the reaction to the protest created this overall feeling, which was partly around the election and the attack on the Capitol on January 6th, but this overall feeling that the social fabric was breaking down and everybody's on their own to deal with this set of crises. That was clearly in the background of all of this last year. It relates to the surge in gun sales and the pandemic, obviously. But I think of those three components as really being the best hints about an explanation for what happened. So if you mention the murder of George Floyd and the protests that ensued, my understanding is that there's a few different ideas floating about about how this event might have helped to provoke a rise in violence. One of them, which is commonly cited on the political right, is that calls for defunding the police and perhaps even more broadly police accountability have led to a kind of pullback by the police. But essentially you're telling the police, we don't like what you're doing. And so they're saying, fine, we won't do anything. Then I guess there's a second idea, which I think you also think plays a role, which is more around residents of neighborhoods cooperating with police less because police misconduct is more salient to them than it was a few months earlier, uh, that there's a kind of collective loss of trust in police. How do you weigh these factors or is trying to weigh them against each other too short-sighted a sort of thing? Yeah, so I think you've hit on both sets of processes that play out and that are not just limited to the protests around racial injustice last year, but that have been documented in other high-profile protests against police violence, police brutality, racial injustice in the criminal legal system, including the protests around Michael Brown and Freddie Gray in Baltimore. So a set of processes often, not always, but often take place after these kinds of protests. One, as you mentioned, is that the police can change their behavior. And that can happen because of a change in policy. They can shut down specific units within police departments. It can happen because police officers are legitimately worried about, you know, becoming the next viral video, about taking the abuse that might come with getting involved in an incident that they don't have to get involved with. And police can also step back to make a statement, which you also mentioned. And that definitely happens. There's very clear evidence of at least particular places and times where that has happened. So it's not beyond the realm of possibility that if the police feel offended by large-scale protests, then they will decide to stop doing their job, or at least when they have discretion to choose not to get involved in an incident that they otherwise might. So then the second set of processes are also particularly important here, processes that involve residents and how they interact, not just with the police, but with the city more generally. And again, here we have pretty good evidence that in the aftermath of these kind of incidents, these kind of protests, residents sometimes check out. Residents sometimes make 
the case that, hey, if I'm not a valued member of this community, I'm not going to talk to the police. I'm not going to call the police. I'm not going to give information. I'm going to check out. I'm going to do my own thing. And that happens at a lot of places at different times. It's a process that's often left out of these discussions. So when you have the police changing their behavior and the residents changing their behavior in a community where we haven't funded other institutions to step up and play a central role in trying to combat violence and trying to make sure everybody's safe and trying to make sure public spaces are cared for. So when you have a social order that relies on the police dominating public space and the residents working with them, and then both sets of actors step back and say, I'm no longer going along with this. Yeah, then that creates the potential for those spaces to explode. And it doesn't always happen, but this past year it happened in lots of cities across the country. And when you look at the trends, the timing is crystal clear. It happened at the end of May. So you use this phrase, public order, depending on the police dominating public spaces or something to that extent. My understanding is that this comes out of your longstanding work, in particular the book Uneasy Peace, which sort of predicted this moment in two important ways. It predicted that actually policing is a really important determinant of crime, that it does really help to keep down crime if you have a very heavy police presence. But it also predicted that the ways in which that disrupts neighborhoods and often mistreats individuals may lead to a kind of rebellion against it. And so in an odd way, it sounds like your work was prescient on these two fronts, which collectively really helped to describe this moment. Tell us a little bit about the argument of why the peace that we had until, say, 2014, the relative peace, was so uneasy. And then I'd love to reflect with you on what the implications of that are. If we can't just go back to where we were, where do we want to go or where can we go? Yeah, it's a great question. So the reason I called the book Uneasy Peace is because we hadn't solved the larger challenge of extreme urban inequality and all of the problems and challenges that come bundled when you have extreme inequality. And by that, I mean segregation, how segregation then translates into vastly unequal resources across communities and vastly unequal institutions across communities, concentrated poverty extreme housing and affordability and have a severe cost burden that is, again, often concentrated in particular communities, addiction, mental illness, homelessness, and circulation of guns. So the model to deal with that since the 60s, or at least I make the case in the book, that the model that we developed in the U.S. to deal with that was to disinvest, to abandon central city neighborhoods not try to solve those problems and instead invest and rely on the police and the prison system to deal with all of that. And, you know, I do think that model has been very stable since the late 1960s when we first kind of set along that path and Daniel Patrick Moynihan announced the policy of benign neglect to deal with the problems of central cities and even though there have been investments over time, there have not been sustained investments to deal with urban inequality. And so the argument that I made in the book was that when you rely on solving all these problems through the police and the prison system, you can do it, right? The police are 
effective at controlling violence. You know, if there are more police on the street, it reduces violence. Okay. But it also generates all these costs. It generates anger. It generates resentment. And that anger and resentment grew as more and more people saw what was happening in low-income communities of color, how law enforcement was interacting with residents. You know, for those who, like myself, who don't live in a neighborhood where the police are seen as a threat, even though you might have read about it, it's very different to see it, what it looks like. Um, so it generates anger, it generates resentment, it generates a feeling of legal estrangement, feeling like one is not protected by the law or one is not part of the citizenry of a city. And it also generates costs that are more tangible in the sense of, you know, mass incarceration. Mass incarceration is a fundamental change in the U.S., which started in the 1970s. Our incarceration rate has been stable throughout the history of the country until the start of the 1970s, and then it increased by 700% um, from the 70s to the 2010s. And so the impact of that on families, on communities, is only starting to reveal itself because it doesn't just affect the people who are incarcerated, it affects their entire networks, their families, and then it affects the next generation. The basic idea is that you had this solution, which was abandon central cities and invest in the police and the prison. And that had created these conditions of low violence when police effectively dominated public space with the help of a whole bunch of community organizations, which is a separate part of the analysis of the book. And yet it's unstable. It's fragile because it's a solution that doesn't deal with the fundamental problem of urban inequality and the costs of that problem. What exactly do you mean by abandoning inner cities? Is this a matter of particular neighborhoods? The reason why I'm asking is that one of the really striking phenomena of the United States in the last few decades is the regeneration of urban life. You know, I'm recording this from Adams Morgan in Washington, D.C., you know, which used to be a somewhat dangerous neighborhood. It used to be one of the few safe neighborhoods within the districts, you know, as little as 20 years ago, as one of the few places people would go out and middle-class people would live. That has transformed very, very rapidly. There are all of those neighborhoods that have been reclaimed in a way. Now, often through gentrification and other processes that certainly have negative elements. But it strikes me, if you want to describe today Washington, D.C., New York City, Los Angeles, What's striking about these cities today compared to 30 years ago is not urban neglect, it's a great regeneration of urban life. And one of the things that I wonder whether people underestimate is the possibility of what was a white flight, what this case would be a middle-class flight, since I think these cities have become quite diverse, even among the middle class, going forward. But actually, you really do go back to a kind of neglect where a lot of neighborhoods in these cities once again become derelict in the way that they may have been in the 1970s or so. To be very clear, I think this is speculative. I don't think you know we're seeing the beginnings of a resurgence of crime, and it's hard to predict whether it'll stay with us. We are not yet seeing something like this degentrification at scale, so far as I know. But yeah, where does urban regeneration fit in with this idea of benign neglect, and what's the future of that? Yeah. So if you take the argument back to the 60s and say, okay, what is our policy approach to dealing with urban inequality? You know, the war on poverty is over. 
and we enter the period of economic downturn. And from that period onward, I'm making the case that the overall argument has been, okay, we're not going to invest in the core institutions of urban life. Instead, we're going to reduce funding. And that meant political influence fell for central cities as the suburban population expanded. It meant that kind of core investments in housing were pulled back. So that's what I mean when I talk about abandonment. Central city share of state and federal budgets started to fall pretty substantially in that period and never recovered. Okay, so that's what I mean by abandonment. And then the punishment piece is investing in the police and the prison. Now, you're exactly right that beginning in the 90s, when violence fell, cities came back to life. And, you know, the subtitle of the book, It's a Great Crime Decline, the Renewal of City Life. And so I don't attribute the changes that occurred in the 1990s to a renewed federal investment in central cities. There was some of that. I think it's mostly come in the form of temporary investments over time. But the renewal of city life came about because violence fell very clearly. You know, D.C. is a great example. D.C. used to be the murder capital of the U.S. Used to have the highest rate of murder in the U.S. in the 1980s. The number of homicides fell by 80 percent. And I used to live on 18th and T in Adams Morgan. My wife, when we met, she lived in Mount Pleasant. Mount Pleasant, you know, had riots a decade before she lived there. This resurgence of cities, I point to the crime drop as causing it. When D.C. became seen as a place that was not as dangerous as it was, it started to become seen as a place where you can invest, where families can invest in a community. And so that is part of the resurgence of central cities in the U.S. And it happened in D.C., it happened in Boston, it happened in New York. The places that started to reemerge were the places where violence plummeted. And so if you think the reason why you see that a resurgence of urban life in the 90s is really very closely tied to the fallen crime and violent crime, then how worried should we be about these areas getting into trouble again in the next decades? Again, it seems to me like there's no data yet, and probably it takes a good number of years for people to move and so on. But is that something that should be of real concern to us? We should be very worried about it. I have started to think about violence as the fundamental challenge of cities because the very idea of city life doesn't work if public spaces carry the threat of violence. You know, cities are places where people share space and that defines cities in my mind. And that idea breaks down when public spaces are unsafe. And by the way, this is not a story about, you know, whether you and I are going to continue to live in D.C. or I no longer live in New York. I'm in quiet Princeton now, but um, it's not about us. It is about the crime drop had its biggest impact on the most disadvantaged communities, on the most disadvantaged segments of the population. So if you care about inequality, then I make the case that you have to first focus on violence. Nothing about a city will work. No investments will work in the downtown if people are scared to live there, if people don't want to raise their families there, if teachers don't want to teach there, if businesses don't want to open up shop in, in a community. So I think we should be very worried about it. One of my instincts about the social world has come to be over time that things can look incoherent and they can look like they have a lot of pressure on them. But when there's no better alternatives, 
they can be incredibly sticky. In a way, this is the insight that Thomas Kuhn had about scientific theories, that when you have a scientific paradigm and you know you start discovering all these anomalies that the scientific paradigm can't really explain, the community still sticks with that scientific paradigm because there's no alternative to it. And it's only when somebody comes up with, hey, here's a different way of seeing it, that sudden people start over time with new generations of scientists to the fact to the new way of seeing the situation. When we talk about the uneasy peace in cities, I wonder whether in an analogous way it will prove to be more durable than you suspect. And here's the case for that. As we're recording this, it looks very likely that Eric Adams is going to be the next mayor of New York City. He is an African-American political candidate, former cop, somebody who certainly is very critical of police misconduct and police violence, but somebody who also quite strongly argued for more police presence in the streets of New York. We see in opinion polls that actually a majority of Americans, but also a majority of African-Americans, want the same amount or more police on the streets of the neighborhoods rather than less police, which helps to explain the popularity of somebody like Eric Adams in New York City. Now, of course, this is a really crummy choice that people in, say, Brownsville have to make. Uh, They would like real public investment. They would like a police force that is much less militarized, that makes them afraid of misconduct much less, that engages in much less misconduct. But the choices between look, we we don't have the investment and we do have some police brutality, but either the police more or less abandon these neighborhoods and we have a huge spike in crime, or we tolerate all of the disadvantages so that at least crime stays under control. Is that not the choice that people seem to be making? And, And again, I'm not saying that this is an acceptable choice, but does that not suggest that actually the uneasy peace may last a lot longer than we're thinking right now? So... What I'd say is that has been the way the choice is framed. And I think that's the way that policymakers and a lot of residents of central cities think about the choice in front of them. What I try to emphasize is that we know what that choice entails. So we can reduce violence with that approach, but it's going to come with huge costs. And by the way, we can do better even with that model. You know, police departments can do much better. And in New York, prior to last year... Nothing about that model requires a setup of police where you basically can't discipline cops that many of our colleagues know the ones responsible for a huge portion of misconduct and so on, right? Right. And police departments can shift their focus to build trust and legitimacy without sacrificing. In New York, they ended the practice of stop, question, and frisk, and violence kept falling and falling and falling. So police departments can do their job much better and make progress toward the same model, but one that comes without the worst abuses of power and without the kind of most brutal aspects of what we've seen over the past 25 years. What I try to emphasize is that there is another model in front of us It is a model that is not a progressive's view of how the world should be, but it's a a model that's based on extremely rigorous evidence on how to deal with violence without the costs that come with police brutality or mass incarceration. So we now have decades of evidence from lots of really good 
ethnography work on the ground, lots of really good causal analysis and lots of really good randomized control trials telling us that when we invest in core community organizations uh, to provide high quality after school programs to provide better lighting around housing developments to clean up abandoned lots and restore abandoned buildings. It's just business improvement districts. Business improvement districts have a causal effect on violence, okay? All of these kinds of programs, when you invest in them and people know that that organization is gonna be here in 10 years, okay? They're not going away. The leadership is compensated for doing really high quality work. Then those organizations make a neighborhood stronger and make a neighborhood safer. And we've got the best evidence out there to tell us how effective those organizations are. So what you're saying in a way is that going back to my metaphor, yes, if there were no alternative paradigm, then perhaps the choice that people would make would continue to be the same, which is take the very bad but less terrible option of a trade-off and say, we'll continue the uneasy peace. But what you're also saying is there is, in fact, a better paradigm available. And presumably that paradigm, from what I hear, has sort of three components, which is one, you do continue to have police dominating public space to some extent, at least in a transitional period. B, you take effective action against police misconduct in such a way that the cost of that and the injustice that come out of that is much lower. But then C, you actually make all of this public investment to generally improve those neighborhoods over time. Are there other elements of this model that I'm missing? No, that's right. So I think it starts with building other institutions that should play the central role in creating safer and stronger neighborhoods and that we know can play a central role, but have been outside of the discussions about how to deal with violence. And in the meantime, while we do that, now is not the time to pull back police forces. Without another institution that can step in, you're going to create, and I wrote this back before violence started rising, right at the point of the protests, like the reaction of, okay, let's dismantle police departments makes sense. It is entirely justified based on what people saw during the pandemic, during the protests, and over the past five years as police killings haven't fallen at all. But it's going to create more violence if you do that, because it's going to leave communities without any institution that sees it as its central responsibility to make sure violence doesn't emerge, to make sure the neighborhood doesn't go downhill. So you laid it out nicely. The key component is start investing in a new model, a new set of institutions to build stronger neighborhoods. And we've got lots of evidence that that's very possible. We've got evidence that it's at least as effective as investing in the police. And it comes without the staggering costs, and they are staggering, of putting a generation of Black Americans into the prison system, which is what we've done. I want to take a step back here because it seems to me that a lot of the basic conceptual framework you bring to this comes from a tradition in sociology that really emphasizes the role and importance of neighborhoods in determining the lives of individuals. Tell us about that tradition of research, your first book, which is connected to that, and how that should inform our thinking about the challenge of regenerating neighborhoods and why that's so important. Yeah, this is an old tradition in sociology, going back to W.B. Du Bois and a lot of the early sociologists who really tried to understand how in an industrializing world and in an urbanizing world, 
how is social order created in these communities where people are more anonymous and they don't know everyone they're interacting with? And so that theory was really well developed. And then we hit a point where survey research uh, started entering the fold. So survey research is hugely important and a big advance in terms of understanding all kinds of things about life all over the world. The point about the survey research is that this method, as much of an advance as it was, has this default assumption that people are isolated units operating through the world on their own. And it's purely because that's how a survey is designed. So you get information about individuals and their families, but you lose all the information about their communities and their context. And that the survey research paradigm has kind of been dominant in social science. But then there was pushback. And this started really with, or at least I trace it back to William Julius Wilson, who wrote this book in 1987 called The Truly Disadvantaged, where this was a point where cities were going through very rapid changes. Poverty was becoming more and more concentrated and violence was rising. Dependence on the welfare system was increasing. Family structure was changing rapidly. And all these things were happening in the same places. And Wilson looked at what was happening and he put forth this theory to explain all of these changes where he documented the decline in the manufacturing sector, increasing joblessness, the movement of firms outside of central cities, the expansion of civil rights and the movement of the black middle class out of the traditional black ghetto, leaving behind areas where poverty was concentrated, where joblessness was high, where there just weren't jobs around, where the traditional male breadwinner model was no longer feasible. Men were struggling to find jobs and could not support families. Family structure changed. Two-parent family structure broke down. Welfare dependence rose. And violence emerged and was concentrated in particular places. So Wilson put forth this theory, which I read when I was in college and said, holy shit, I want to do what he's doing. You know, that was why I became a sociologist. I read that book and it just made sense of what was happening, not just in central cities, but also where I grew up, where you had concentrated advantage. And, you know, I saw a bunch of guys I went to school with who were screw-ups and they were fine. So it helped explain the full distribution. It helped explain why inequality is distributed the way it is across spaces. All right. So that sort of explains the ways in which neighborhoods really help to determine people's opportunities and people's fates. It sort of reminded us after the years in which we forgot about that because of the importance of survey research, just how centrally people are influenced by whether they happen to be born in this zip code or in the next zip code along. How does that then help to explain the fate in particular of Black America today? It seems to me, and this may be a too simple view, that there's a real bifurcation within the African-American community, that there are the people who are living in the most disadvantaged neighborhoods in compound poverty, and that they have not made much progress on many socioeconomic indicators over the last five decades or so. When you go to the parts of Baltimore, the parts of Minneapolis that remain truly disadvantaged, it is a very bleak picture. At the same time, it seems as though the percentage of African-Americans who in fact live in those truly disadvantaged neighborhoods has reduced over time and perhaps is continuing to reduce. So that you see 
a greater share of African-Americans living in integrated neighborhoods, a greater share of African-Americans living in partially segregated, but more affluent neighborhoods. And that's sort of a positive side of a story. How should we think about the overall picture in light of these components and which components am I missing? Because I'm sure I'm missing some. So I think you're exactly right that when we think about the issue of racial inequality in the U.S., it is rooted in communities. It is rooted in neighborhoods. I did a study where we just looked at how racial inequalities in neighborhood environments have changed over time. And there's been huge change over the past 50 years or so as civil rights expanded and it no longer became legal to discriminate against black Americans. The middle class, the black middle class has started to move out into more affluent communities, more integrated communities. And that's been the only pathway toward reducing racial inequality in our neighborhoods. So what we found essentially is that the only explanation for declining racial inequality happened through families moving out. It has not happened in majority black neighborhoods. Okay, so majority black neighborhoods continue to be areas of large scale disinvestment, large scale investment in systems of punishment in the police and the prison system as for the dominant actors, institutions within those communities. And it has meant that there is this spatial component, which is extremely durable, has persisted over time. It's been the same communities over time and it has these consequences, not just for the day to day lives of black Americans, but for explaining things like racial wealth gaps when you have neighborhoods that are consistently areas of disinvestment. That has implications for property values. That has implications for the economic profiles and the assets of families that, again, persist over generations. So the broader point, you're exactly right, that a lot of this challenge of racial inequality is rooted in communities. What does that tell us about the overall state of Black America? I think in your first book, you were quite pessimistic about it and suggested that there isn't much progress. I guess, is that true of those neighborhoods or is that true of African-Americans as a whole? We haven't made much progress in reducing racial inequality since the end of the civil rights era. And this is not well known because blatant discrimination has fallen or at least has become less acceptable over time. Attitudes about race have changed but the material conditions of Black Americans relative to white Americans have not improved much since the end of the 1960s. And this includes wealth. On some dimensions, there's some progress, like high school completion, for instance, but college completion, there's not much progress. And wealth and income and earnings and unemployment, again, for both whites and Blacks, these trends fluctuate over time. But the gap has been remarkably persistent over time. And then you add in the rise of incarceration, which has been primarily centered on Black and Latino young men. And that has added this new dimension of racial inequality. So I think we have to have a sober analysis of what these trends look like in order to start the conversation about what to do. It's not widely known that we haven't made any progress since the late 1960s. So what do we do? How is it that you put the different pieces of this puzzle together, trying to create a policy that fights crime energetically, in part because, as you're saying, it does hit the poorest and the hardest, 
and at the same time tries to do better than, according to your argument, we have over the last decades on boosting real progress? Honestly, the proposals on the table right now are not far from the proposals that I would put forth. And when I say that, I mean, President Biden put out a crime plan yesterday that's not perfect, but touches on a lot of the areas that I think are central. Let me give you the crude version, and then we can talk more about specifics. We need to deal with the problem of violence through large-scale investment and mobilization. That's the same answer for how we deal with COVID, for how we deal with climate change, for how we deal with suicide, for how we deal with the opioid epidemic. It comes through large-scale investment and mobilization. And we're at a point in this country, at least, where we're not particularly good at solving big challenges that require large-scale investment and mobilization. That's what I'm writing about right now. That's a separate conversation, but it's not a mystery what we need. We need to invest in core community institutions. The investments that are being proposed in the jobs plan, like $5 billion for anti-violence organizations, it would be the first federal commitment you know, at this scale to those kinds of organizations. It's not enough, but it would have a huge impact. You know, I think the Recovery Act back in 2009 had a huge impact. It doesn't get the credit that it deserves, but I think communities were ready to fall apart then. This is what we need. We need large-scale investments that hit every community across the country. So you've given us a pretty good sense of what we should do. That doesn't mean that we necessarily will do that. I'm not going to ask you for a point estimate of where we will be with crime or with racial equality or with any of the big themes we've discussed 20 or 40 or 60 years from now, but perhaps give us a few of the possible scenarios. What are some of the basic kinds of worlds that we might end up in a few decades from now? Depending on the investments that are on the table right now, whether any of these proposals go through and at what scale, this could be an aberration. This could be a moment where things look pretty bad, but the conditions of last year calm down and investments come into communities, stabilize cities, make sure city budgets don't drop, make sure community organizations are funded and can go out and deal with the crisis that's happening right now. So one scenario is that things stabilize because of investment. And then, you know, what comes after that will depend on probably who's in power in 2022 and beyond. I fear that this is going to be the most optimistic scenario, but it's nice to have an optimistic (laughs) scenario. Yeah, well, it's nice to have proposals that would deal with big problems. And if you care about solving problems in the U.S., then... You might be worried about the expense of some of these proposals, and I think that's reasonable to worry about. But if you care about solving problems, then I think people should be excited about what's on the table right now, which hasn't been true for a long time. We haven't had proposed solutions. So what are some of the more pessimistic scenarios? If either these community investments don't quite have the impact that you're hoping they will have, or they simply can't get through Congress... What do you think are the likely scenarios then? The worst case scenario in my mind is the current situation reinforced. And by that, I mean failing to acknowledge and deal with or step up and make the investments that are needed and instead just turning back to the police and the prison system, kind of failing to deal with our system of spatial inequality and allowing it to 
be amplified and reinforced through policy, allowing the political division that is mapped on the space become solidified over time. That's where we've been heading for a while. I think without intervention, that's probably where we're going to continue. Patrick Sharkey, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, good talking with you. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.